0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me today, Cam Russell, we have the returns of. He is, and he's written it down officially, he is the chief strategy officer at Nort Labs, which is a growth strategy firm. Uh, He is Onkar Jin.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Uh, Great to have you back. And also a returning champion, we have, uh, he's a writer. And the founder of Pusaka uh, Industries. I, I really want to say that. Uh, he is Edin Koo. Good to be back, Cam. Thank you. Uh, he's also a fellow of ISIS, but Malaysian ISIS, not yeah, the other yeah. ISIS. So our three topics, well, this is the language show today. So our three topics, are: topic number one is vernacular language. Topic number two is the word iconic. And finally, topic number three is the Malay language. So, Kajin uh vernacular
1: yes um so when i say vernacular i'm you know i'm not so much thinking of like the fierce debate about vernacular school education which is you know what we're so obsessed about in malaysia but rather the role of vernacular like you know, who even gets to say what is the official versus the vernacular and you know how is that changed how what is the def- how is the definition of what is vernacular and what is not um changed throughout time right so you know, here I'm thinking about how you know, like, like you know, in in medieval Renaissance Italy, like Latin and you know, ancient Greek was the, the 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 canonical standard for literature up until Dante Alighieri wrote the Divine Comedy. You know, Dante's Inferno in the Tuscan, right, which was considered a almost provincial, unofficial, backwater kind of dialect, and then and voila, it became more mainstream and accepted,
0: right. It became Italian.
1: Yeah, it became Italian, right? It became te- official. Um, so, so I was thinking about that. And, you know, I, I always kind of remember a, a, a funny quote I've once heard, which is like, the difference between a language and a dialect is that a language has an army behind it.
0: <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Eden, you, you know, you, you're fascinated by language. I'm sure you've got thoughts.
2: Yeah, I've got lots of thoughts, actually. This is, uh, seems to be an enduring problem everywhere. The need to control the uh, the palate, uh, the tongue, mm. and, and to homogenize uh, a certain kind of language. And I think uh, there's so much about uh, a whole power industry behind it uh, in, in most other countries. You know, you, a good example, for example, is Thailand, where they've constantly had this uh, um, battle between what consists uh, real Thai, the real Thai language, yeah? Uh, and uh, many of, of, of very often, uh, lots of these uh, languages and ways of speaking are imposed in already existing and very rich, uh, mainly oral, uh, oral cultures. Yeah. Uh, so this tension also is between the oral and the and the literary. Uh, I think is a very enduring and interesting one.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, adding, can I ask you a question? Uh, I think it's relevant. How how did Bahasa Indonesia get to be? Why did that that particular language in indonesia become bahasa indonesia
2: uh, very very wonderful question very interesting politics behind this because sukarno wanted a popular revolution uh, and it would have been obvious i think to many among in the indonesian islands that javanese would be chosen but javanese is a highly hierarchical language very confined to the javanese uh, whereas malay was the lingua franca of everyone uh, so he decided to opt for malay uh, since it was already spoken by most people as a form of interaction. Uh, and it was also, for him, classless. yeah, uh, And Malay was, within the Indonesian context, quite a vernacular language.
0: Yeah, because I, I read a wonderful book, which, Edin, I know you've read as well, by, what's his name, Cohen, about uh, Bangsawan in yeah. Indonesia, and, and, and how it was a choice to do the performances, although they were based in Java, to do the performances in Malay because it was, as you say, the 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 lingua franca. But it would have been a, a second language for for most people in this area, outside of parts of Sumatra or the... Yeah, uh, but
2: intelligible, intelligible, right? Intelligible in the way that Bangsawan also was performed here in Malaysia to a multi-ethnic audience uh, using Bahasa uh, Melayu, basically vernacular Malay, or Bahasa Pasa as we would call it.
0: But now that the vernacular is, and by the way, Webster's Dictionary defines vernacular as the language that ordinary, ordinary people speak. So therefore, when we speak about vernacular at schools, it's not really the appropriate word. But the vernacular now would be uh, emojis. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you suggesting we, we, we write, rewrite Shakespeare in emojis? Or uh,
2: I love emojis. I think they're <laughs> so well, expressive. I mean, I've even created my own. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs>
0: Which I'm sure are mutually intelligible across generations, etc. Yeah,
1: no, I think it's interesting you bring up Shakespeare, right? Because you know Shakespeare in his era was considered a pretty big rule breaker and had lots of things that were considered at the time um, gibberish, right? He basically invented words, and you know it was not the you know there are parts of Shakespeare's comedies which are incredibly lowbrow for that time. Um, and uh, I think, um, you know, add in what, what you were saying about how does this need to control the palate, the tongue. You know, I I think it's it's sometimes very interesting how governments or central powers try to backpedal sometimes because I think of how, like, the for decades, right, the Singapore government tried to say, no, no, Singlish is not a real thing. You have to use proper English. No, no, don't use Hokkien or all these dialects. Use Mandarin. And now, uh, in tourism ministry and all these kind of cultural things they're saying oh no no Singlish is our identity and they're using official ads and everything to promote Singlish as a marker of unique Singaporean cultural identity
2: it's an awful dialect though. it's an absolutely <laughs> awful dialect but
0: it, it, and it's changing all the time I think one yeah. of the reasons one of the, one of the good arguments surely against allowing that kind of vernacular to become official language is that it, it's outdated in five years in, in half an hour it's just changing so fast. I don't know what, what Manglish would have been in the 1950s, but it would be, you couldn't understand it now.
2: Yeah, but I think the, 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 the thing is that uh, languages are lived experiences uh, and they are organic and they will continue to, you know, despite the best of intentions uh, by the, 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 the forces that be, uh, language will find a way of inventing itself um so uh we may not all like it i don't like the common vernacular today of like you know uh cutting off words into two alphabets my mother even does it and it just drives me up the wall but what do you mean uh, you know from okay okay and k oh. and uh um yeah it happens a lot in malay you know young becomes yg that kind of thing
0: well, that, that is what happens in language words get shorter yes that's how the Chinese got their um, tonal language because it just got shorter and shorter, and now it's just a tone.
2: Yes, and one of, one of the things about you know WhatsApp language and emojis and things like that is essentially how much more we are going back to caveman kind of <laughs> caveman kind of uh, ways of communication. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that as a person, I like you know, I I know Ed and you like to write things out in pen and ink, and then yes, somehow push that into the computer and sort of like, but um, as a person who writes things, you discover it's so easy to offend, et cetera, because you can't, you just cannot show sarcasm, irony, et cetera. But the emojis mm-hmm. actually have become used to tell people this is serious. This is not serious. And, uh...
2: But at a very great price, right? Because if you can't write out your satire uh, and you ha- need to use an emoji, there's something I think neurologically wrong, with all of us these
0: days, hmm. oh, wow. Yeah. And you've you've expressed that to your mother, have you?
2: Well, <laughs> in, in in very plain terms, yes. Dear mother, <laughs> cut it out now.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, um, so final word to you, uh, Kajin. Vernaculars, good, bad.
1: Um. Well, I mean, I think it's just a reflection of how language is constantly evolving, right? And I, I, you know, already there are Singlish authors and poets for winning awards, literary awards. And so I am looking forward to the first Manglish Booker Prize winner in 10 years.
0: Oh my goodness. Well, Edin's shaking his head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we're going to move on to topic number two, which is also about evolving language and uh, a bit of a spiel here. So uh, bear with me. It's um, the word iconic. I would say that the word iconic has become a thing in the last 10, 15 years. Before that, people didn't really say it, but now it's all the time. The Mona Lisa is iconic. The Twin Towers are iconic. And I, I don't like the word because I find it very flabby. Um, it's iconic of what? And I much prefer that we would use the word emblematic because it forces you to say emblematic of something. So the Twin Towers are emblematic of Malaysian 1990s hubris. Um, because what we really mean by iconic is just it's just very, very famous. But also because the original word, you know, icon, with a K as opposed to a C, takes us back to the Greek Orthodox Church, and then later the Russian Orthodox Church. And icons, paintings, sometimes big, sometimes very small. And there'll be paintings of saints, of Jesus, of Mary. And these will be painted by monks. And... The reasons why they're very special is because, and I think it's very logical to think this, is that if you as a human dared to paint Jesus, say, uh, I mean, that's a big thing. And you had to be possessed by the Holy Spirit in order to be able to paint that. You, your hand was guided by God himself. So that the painting that you painted wasn't just a representation of jesus it was itself a holy relic you you actually worshipped the painting and these paintings were then held aloft at the front of armies besieged cities but then in the in the around the uh, 1100s 1200s there there were wars fought over these images inside the eastern roman empire the byzantine empire between those who (coughs) loved their icons and those who hated them because the byzantine empire was under threat by Arab Muslims, by Turks, and the Turks especially were winning. So the the Byzantines thought they'd been forsaken by God. They had offended God. And these Muslims had no images. It was, you know, it was part of their law. So uh, the army in uh, the Byzantine army, the men, uh, rejected them. And they wanted to, and various emperors wanted to take hold of all of them, destroy them, Uh, But women, on the other hand, have a very different relationship with God because these Christian women were unable to attend churches. They couldn't join in any of the religious ceremonies at all. So their relationship with God was very private, in the house, with the house icon. So that was how they were able to connect with God. You took away the icon, you took away their ability to be in the presence of, of their God. And so when people talk about Oh, the Twin Towers are iconic. <laughs> That's imbuing, in the word, imbuing something as, as banal as the Twin Towers with some godlike aura, with some holiness, <laughs> which it doesn't have. These are all man-made choices. Even the Mona Lisa is, is merely man-made. And we, we should give, give credit, really, if anything, to the creators of that and not think that they were uh, possessed by God in the moment of doing. Um, so I don't like the word iconic because I think that it's overused and it's flabby and it's, it means more than what we actually mean it to mean. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys, uh, have any opinions on that?
2: Yeah, I hate the word iconic too in the way that it's used today. <clears throat> I'm very attached to the way it was described by you earlier in terms of its origins I also, um, you know, would not would not dismiss God so easily about being a guiding force in the painting of the Mona Lisa, or in any of Francis Bacon's uh, paintings, or in Lucian Freud's paintings, uh, because there's the aspect of the subliminal and the aspect of surrendering to the subliminal, and then you're not always in command of what you're doing, particularly artistically. One of the great um, phenomenons, of course, in the 20th century, the 19th century onwards, 19th 20th century and even after the period of the Enlightenment, is how so many of these uh, words, terms ha- have been appropriated into the materialist uh, experience of our lives. Yeah, uh, So that iconic, for example, to use iconic on uh, the, the KLS, KLCC Twin Towers is not, <laughs> it's because we are so familiar with it. But you know, so much of, of, of materialist ideology uh, appropriated and adopted uh, these uh, uh, terms, and then created cultures in in the wake of this. Mm. Kajin?
1: yeah, I mean, I think um, I wouldn't, you know, push back so much against the use of the word iconic, especially to describe things like, say, the Petronas Twin Towers, because, I mean, certainly it does not merit the aura of uh, divinity, but I think there is something to be said about that, whether subconsciously or otherwise, that. These become like in giant symbols of something that you know. I think like Wawasan Twenty Twenty is supposed to be this moving impetus that's larger than oneself, right? So maybe it's it's certainly a, a kind of uh, the, there's a certain religiosity in in these kind of political movements that I think do appropriate that use of icons and the idea of an icon being a symbol that's larger than life that. Can move you to a certain impetus.
0: I, mm, I guess, but but we never we never say that though. We just simply say it's it's an icon. It's iconic, and then yeah. the rest of it's just understood in some shorthand.
2: Also, because we become very callous, uh, and uh, you know, today these words fall very flat. They use very ubiquitously uh, with no real resonance on anyone. Sometimes I think it's also the personality behind. Uh, such, a, such a use of word or the, you know, the project which the word encapsulates. So when Mahader says uh, iconic, it's very different from anyone who has come after him using the word iconic.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, Mahathir in his day, in his pomp, he was the one who decided what was an icon. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, he had, he had the whole uh, apparatus of government behind him to say, this thing, not your, not your vernacular language, Gajin. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, no, your Manglish—that's that, not an icon.
1: No, it's not. But it could be elevated to one.
0: But I also find, like, when I watch TV documentaries, I mean, not necessarily Malaysian was, was The last time I watched a Malaysian TV documentary, uh, you know, and they'll say, "Oh, and here we are in um, in uh, Rome. I don't know, Rome, mm-hmm. and uh, at Saint Peter's, an icon of whatever." And it's it's the the gatekeepers of our cultural understanding, what's great and what's not great, they're saying this is this is the icon. Uh, they're declaring it, but they're just joining in on it for now. So, well, today's icon is tomorrow's trash. And yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. Well, okay, well, um, so that's icons, folks, and iconic. So it won't be used ever again, I think.
1: Uh. <laughs> it's a banned word now.
0: Yeah, because a bit of culture ha- has iconic power. Uh, <laughs> to, to banish whole Cam words you're,
1: you're the icon of a bit of culture
0: <laughs> but i'm just it's just a voice though Can a voice be an icon i don't know it be an image isn't it? all right anyway in a moment though we're going to come to uh i think possibly the, the biggest single topic we've ever had on a bit of culture which is the malay language uh but here on a bit of culture bfm 89.9 And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, Onkar Jin, and Edin Koo. And now Edin Koo, drumroll, the Malay language. Just thought
2: I'd address basically this issue that keeps cropping up yeah, about uh, what the place of the Malay language is in our our nation. Uh, What is its status as the national language? Uh, And of course, as you know, today matters are being brought to court Um, Once again, the issue of vernacular schools, do we respect the Malay language enough? What is the kedaulatan or the sovereignty of the Malay language? Um, And so much of this is spoken again in in legal terms uh, and without very little understanding of how organic and what the origins and etymology and everything of the Malay language is, um, which I find very, very troubling because I find that the Malay language, as we know, is one of the most cosmopolitan, worldly languages in the world. Um, made up of so many composites. Uh, It's also a diasporic language that is spoken, uh, you know, in a variety of tongues uh, from the Philippines, right, into the Indonesian islands and into uh, Malaysia and South Thailand and variations of it all over the world. Um, And here we are using the law to try and determine how it is spoken, uh, how it is structured, uh, and um, with no real appreciation of its heterogeneity and its diversity, Uh, and we're using institutional power, as Kajin had said earlier, institutional power uh, to to, to try and insist on what is right spoken Malay and what's wrong spoken Malay, and and, let us uh, encourage everyone to speak it by using the law. It's the maddest thing ever. Um, But uh, I think the principal effect it will have is a further and further alienation from uh, the Malay language, uh, I, for one, these days pretty much almost completely speak in Malay when I can, even in personal and uh, conversations. Um, I find it such a delight. Uh, and just the other day, I was thinking of the three uh, things. Uh, if I were to be going to the gallows, uh, what, would be, <laughs> what would be the first, uh, what, what would be the film I watch, last film I watch, last song I hear, last book I read, and they all happen to be in the Malay language. You know, and uh, I think we are being um, deprived of the ability to to uh, get into the skin of the Malay language on our own terms, uh, with all this uh, official posturing, and that is a great denial, I think, of what the Malay language actually is in terms of its origins and reach uh, through the centuries.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, Kajin,
1: um, yeah, I mean. Um I think it's it's interesting how you know over the decades, like Dewan Bahasa dan Pustaka, has become, uh, like you know the the kind of force in determining what how we should speak, how we should pronounce things and all. Um, and I I think one one thing that I always think about when when we say the Malay language is how more and more the line there is this insistence on drawing a very like red line between say Basa Indonesia versus Bahasa Malaysia right and I'm like I'm always like but why 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 are we so obsessed with drawing this line when I think there's so much beauty and understanding to be found between uh, in, in these languages and there's so much more in common than there is difference
0: mm. I, I am not uh, fluent in the Malay language uh, <laughs> Edin's shaking his head there it's such <laughs> disappointment um and, uh, but I do know that enough to know that um, if, you know, if, if a language archaeologist started chiseling away at the Malay language, they would just come up, come upon layer, upon layer, upon layer of history and accretion of, um, of cultures from, like, how did this word turn up here? My God, you know, what, Turkish, what that? And, uh, and, and it would be, it is the repository of history. In the, in the, we don't have material um, archaeological remains. Uh, you know, wood dissolves, etc. But the language is a home for, for history. Uh, but I would say, Edin you, you, Edin Koo, by the way, Edin Koo, father, Chinese, mother, Indian, is the most, most Malay person I've ever met. And y- you're bemoaning the fact that the, the courts are doing this, but the courts can succeed.
2: Uh, no, it's, I'm not bemoaning the fact that the courts are doing this. They have to adjudicate because someone brought the issue to the courts. If you ask me, it's a kind of abuse of the court process. I'm also very troubled that, you know, we seem to uh, have no room to have conversations about uh, these things. These are aspects of our subliminal life, of the life of our humanities. They're not legal matters, you know, and, I, and I, I'm getting very, very perturbed that every single thing these days, um, with the more, you know, uh, humane aspects of our society, uh, you know, are, are being dragged into court and we're looking for legal resolutions uh, to things like this, which, which even his, you know, to determine history these days, people take things to court. Um, it, it, it is very, very reflective of an increasingly, not only fragmented, but reductive society. So what would you rather see happen? I'd like the nation to have a good quarrel with itself. Aren't we well, always? Easily done. Uh, you know, we are not having a quarrel if I say with the ourselves. word laksa,
0: you know, off it goes. Yeah.
2: We, are trying to, we are trying to fight. There's a very big difference. Uh, a quarrel, I think, is something sustained. Uh, it is something also uh, exciting and adventurous. Uh, you know, we have uh, school padang scraps all the time, uh, which are very juvenile.
0: Fair enough, Edin. But then what would be your argument in this quarrel?
2: Well, I, you know, so much is happening in Malay. Actually, uh, independently, uh, outside of the of the bureaucratic structures, people are writing a great deal more in Malay. Translation work is happening. Publishing in Malay is, is, has hit mm-hmm. the roof. Uh, you know, as you know, Pauline translated a Sarawakian poet, went all the way to the United States. One of you know, nominated for one of the best uh, translation awards. And none of our institutions actually not only acknowledge this; they don't even know it's happening. Yeah. So 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 uh I think there needs to be a broader we need a generational change we need a generation I think the only um the only uh, comfort I take in all of this thing it irritates me more than has an effect on anything because uh, uh you know many of these institutions can just be ignored and life carries on as it is here in in Malaysia uh but but they are irritating la, and 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 they do have I suppose a institutional effect on the way things uh, proceed
0: well, Kajin, to take it back to, to to your 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 discussion with the the vernacular, and um, I think Edin is is advocating for allowing the breathing space for a language to be the language that it wants to be. Uh, but wouldn't that be a bit of a mess?
1: Well, I mean it's messy, but you know I I think I I completely understand Edin's frustration, right? Because you know when we when we go back to courts, right? When we go back to you know, all these centralized institutions to determine what is right and wrong, so to speak. Then, ultimately, we are still going back to these very centralized structures of, of one... Basically, a, a few bureaucrats getting to decide what is right and what is wrong, right? And I think... I I, know I completely agree with you, and And I don't think it just applies to, say, the Malay language, but also, you know, how do we view uh, social norms, right? Mm. What should be right and wrong? We always have a tendency that i mean i think uh, amongst activists amongst cultural commentators uh, there's this feeling like unless we're acknowledged by the powers that be this is not real mm. right and perhaps one of the solutions is just to be like who cares right there is a flourishing industry there is a worldwide kind of interest and in this e- and in this era we you know we should seek to build bridges not just and kind of get outside of these state-centric narratives and just interact with more people outside of those uh, of those bounds
0: yeah I, I i think the who cares is actually really taking over in this country <laughs> and perhaps perhaps you you are uh, a uh, a dinosaur of, of a previous age where you thought the state was um the final arbiter i mean there's this whole other world and and it's just doing its thing mm.
2: Uh, And, you know, very interesting things are happening. Uh, I'm an alumni of the School of Oriental and African Studies. Uh, The Malay uh, department uh, kind of, uh, you know, fell into quiet for about a decade, but it's now starting a resurgence. Uh, In Singapore, the number of people wanting and starting, beginning to learn Malay, the Singaporean (laughs) national language, by the way, um, is growing in number. Uh, A lot of interesting work being done by uh, Malay speakers in in very innovative and imaginative ways, um, you know, lots of translation work going on. So I think the Malay language is is uh, in, in a very good state at the moment, despite the constant moans of our of our uh, language bureaucrats.
0: Oh yeah, it's really not under any threat. No, it's not, and and they act as if the whole world's against us, and yeah. uh, it's not.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I I do believe. I think it's also a desperate. Uh, effort to try and um legitimize themselves for a little longer because their very legitimacy is in question uh and uh, you know I have nothing against the DBP it is a it is it 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 started out as a very very credible and good uh, institution it had many of our uh, uh, great figures of literature and 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 uh, the arts you know representative of the DBP but you know, right now it's become very insipid, now, and 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 it needs to reinvent itself and reflect on itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just want to final question. What was the name of the institute in France that guards the French language?
2: Alliance Française.
0: No, that, that's the that's the teaching one. That's the teacher. That's, that's the. So in France, there's an official body that adjudicates language, and you you can use this words and you cannot use those words, and uh, it's very. I, wouldn't I don't have think that anybody to...
2: cares. I don't think anybody cares in <laughs> France. No, if, you're lo- if you're looking at the very interesting French novelists, you know, of Algerian descent and things like that mm. coming out now, uh, nobody cares very much for this uh, Puritan.
0: I wouldn't want that here either. So, uh, okay, so this has been the language show, but uh, we go final part of the show, recommendations. We recommend something that we think might be of interest. And Onkar Jin, will go first.
1: Right. Um, so, you know, speaking of all these languages and patois and how, you know, the whole world of collaboration is booming, uh, I, I'm my recommendation for today is going to be 44-876, which is an album between uh, Sting of, you know, The Police fame and Jamaican reggae musician Shaggy. So it's a British reggae English Jamaican patois album that won the best reggae album at the 50, 61st Grammy Awards. It's amazing. Like uh, the, there is uh, there's live um, shows of Sting and Shaggy just singing to each other, and uh, I think it's 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 the best example of you know what how beautiful the vernacular and and language can be and music uh, can be when it's uh, released outside of these strict structures of what is right and what's wrong.
0: I, I always thought Jaggy was kind of faux reggae. It was not the real deal. Well... I mean, if Sting comes along and, and anoints it, then I guess, you know, but I always thought it was kind of like like comedy reggae. I,
2: I've not heard this album, but, you know, the police started out as a reggae band I suppose, in, yeah. in yeah. the 70s. They, they adopted reggae as basically their, mm-hmm. their, their, their platform, no? So I'll be quite interested to hear this album.
1: Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Uh, the 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 my favorite track from the song is called uh, Englishman in New York, and then Shaggy chimes in and says a uh, Jamaican in New York, and the next lyric is an, an illegal alien.
0: Okay, uh, I'll see if producer Hanif can dig that up and play us out on that one. Uh, <laughs> so the name of the album is again no no I, I no actually in a moment I'm going to tell you why you can't do that. But what the name of the album is again?
1: Forty four slash eight seven six. Okay. It's the dialing codes for the United Kingdom and Jamaica. Oh,
0: all right. Okay, so my recommendation is the reason why we cannot play out with uh, Sting and Shaggy. It's because my recommendation is a hot, brand new singer, songwriter, (laughs) songstress by the name of Kate Bush. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because one of her songs, Running Up That Hill... Uh, suddenly, shot to number one again after how many years? Since 1983, I think. Yeah. Because of the show Stranger Things, which I recommended last week, and so many young people are, are, are discovering Kate Bush for the first time, and she is amazing. Uh, Edin, you like you must like Kate Bush.
2: I love Kate Bush. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I want to recommend her masterpiece, her masterwork, the album Hounds of Love, and the song Running Up That Hill is the first track on that. It's just amazing. Uh, it's one of my most favorite albums, but it's not one that I can listen to very often because it it's so demanding of the listener. Uh, you can't just have it as background music. Um, I don't know, Kajian, Edin, would you agree? There, there are albums that are like that. You, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. You love them, but you cannot play them very often. Yeah, yeah.
1: I would also recommend "Don't Give Up." The one between Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel.
2: Peter Gabriel, yeah, that's that's superb.
0: Yeah, yeah uh okay so my recommendation is the album and listen to the entire album don't and god if you put it on shuffle i will find you (laughs) i will hunt you down (laughs) i will smash everything you hold dear um and it's a narrative
1: guys you gotta you gotta (laughs) go by chapter by chapter
0: yeah shuffle is the worst invention of humankind (laughs) um so anyway um hounds of love kate bush uh edin Koo.
2: Yeah, I'm going to take a leaf off this recommendations thing and uh, I've been listening to a lot of the recordings of the Desert Island Discs, Hmm. um, uh, which are available now on Spotify. Uh, So uh, I would recommend that you scroll through that and you'd find incredible, incredibly interesting personalities doing recommendations as we are doing, but uh, um, wonderful narratives of their own lives and how they came to this piece of music or that book, Um, and uh, which is why perhaps I was thinking of what what I'd listen to, what I'd view, and what I'd read before I, uh, you know, faced the gallows.
0: You know, when you said about facing the gallows, I thought of Desert Island Disc, but that is, if you're abandoned on an island and you're going to be there for years and years, what music would you choose? Yes. Edin immediately turns it around as, if I was about to be beheaded, (laughs) what would be the last thing I would do? Uh, so rather yeah. sums up Edin Koo, but okay, all right, we're gonna I'm gonna see if Hanif can produce Hanif can play out with all of these things. So yeah, Edin, okay. you choose what is your your one at least one of your desert island discs.
2: My desert island disc favorite was Yo Yo Ma. Ah, it was absolutely splendid. Yeah.
0: Um. Okay, but any particular piece of music though? Uh, me?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would have to be Leonard Cohen. Ooh, any particular
0: wonderful. Leonard Cohen? Or just the whole thing. You won't let Producer honey have to just do 48 hours of Leonard Cohen let's, on BFM. Let's,
2: let's go for If It Be Your Will, my favorite Leonard Cohen song. Mm. If It Be Your Will.
0: Okay, let's try it. Um, he may say no, but he may say yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. And, uh, well, I'd really like to thank Onkar Jin.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And Edin Ku. Very good to be here. Thank you wonderful to have you here and in a moment you're going to get someone to come along and switch your computer off because you don't know how to do that <laughs> <laughs> and uh and myself cam ruslan and please join us next week for another exciting episode of a bit of culture here on bfm 89.9 I'm an Englishman in New York. Whoa, I'm an alien, I'm a legal alien. I'm an Englishman in New York. Whoa, I'm an alien, I'm a legal alien. I'm an Englishman in New York. Hey, yo, I wear my colors in my back pocket. My back pocket. I got a big in my hand In my hand Hey, and you might notice Here's a swag anytime I walk I'm a Jamaican in New York Whoa, I'm an alien I'm a legal alien I'm a Jamaican If it be your will That I speak no more My voice be still as it was before. I will speak no more. I shall abide.
2: your will,
0: let a voice be true, from this broken hill, I will sing to you.